Welcome to the 2021 Albert M. Greenfield Forum at the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today, we're discussing Peter Gallison's new movie, Black Holes, The Edge of All We Know. If you would like to see the movie, either before or after watching this video, please follow the links in the description of this video to find out how. This video has two parts. The first hour is a conversation between Peter Gallison, Lorraine Dastin, and Simon Schaffer. The second hour is a discussion between about 150 members of the consortium community who had watched the movie and Peter Gallison. We're really privileged to have with us these three discussants for the first part who are and have been among the leading lights in the history of science. Peter Gallison is a physicist, historian of science, and filmmaker at Harvard University, where he is the Joseph Pellegrino University professor. He is the author of several books, including How Experiments End, Image and Logic, Einstein's Clocks, Poincaré's Maps, and with Lorraine Dastin, Objectivity. The movie we're discussing today is Peter's fourth. In 2000, he released his first film, Ultimate Weapon, The H-Bomb which probed the moral political debates over the H-bomb. Secrecy, released in 2008, was on national security secrecy and containment from 2015, is about the need to guard radioactive materials and warn generations 10,000 years into the future. Lorraine Dastin has published on a wide range of topics in the history of science, including the history of probability and statistics, wonders in early modern science, the moral authority of nature, and the history of scientific objectivity. She is Director Emerita at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. Many of us know her as authors of such important books as Classical Probability in the Enlightenment, Wonders and the Order of Nature, written with Catherine Park, and Objectivity, written with Peter Gallison. Simon Schaffer is a professor of the History and Philosophy of Science at the Department of History and Philosophy of Science in the University of Cambridge. He is author and editor of many influential books and papers, perhaps most famously of Leviathan and the Air Pump with Stephen Shapin. And he has been an inspiring mentor to a generation of young scholars. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy the two discussions. Peter Gallison, thank you very much for giving us early access to your movie and for joining us to talk about it. It's a pleasure and thanks to you and to Simon Schaffer and Rain Dastin for joining. In your previous books and in your previous movies, you have talked about the sciences from many different perspectives, including physicists, experimentalists, theorists, engineers, artists, architects, linguists. Can you talk a little bit about the perspectives that you chose to include in this movie about black holes and what you were aiming to achieve with the movie? I had in mind with film in general uh, to try to get at the sort of the material circumstances in which science is produced, something that uh, can also be approached, obviously, in print. But I thought seeing things in their immediacy would be helpful. And in this particular instance, I wanted to emphasize the collaborative nature of science and seeing people working together uh, in the back and forth of intervening and interruption and silences 
to be able to see something of the work that goes into science in its collective formation, which is something that's harder to do in print, where you have to in a, you have to move serially. It's hard to have multiple people intervening at the same time when you're writing. So I, I thought that that was something that I really wanted to emphasize both on the observational side and on the theoretical side. And then winding throughout is a kind of third strand of philosophy or the meaning of what what black holes signify to people uh, beyond the immediate technical issues that they're that they have at hand. Thank you, Rainy Dastin, for joining us. Well, first of all, kudos, Peter, to you and all of your collaborators. The film is enthralling, and I speak not just for myself, but um also for my family who watched the film again with me last night, all of us said we didn't want it to end. Um, it's also an eerily beautiful film. And I think my first question to you is really about the role of the visual, both the visual in terms of your cast of characters and this entire quest to visualize that which cannot be visualized, but also how you and your collaborators also tried to visualize that which cannot be visualized. So um, I, I can't help but be struck at, and this is, I say this um, as an early modernist, by how archaic, frankly, some aspects of this ultra-modern um, avant-garde science project seem to me. There's a phrase that's often quoted in the 17th century, it's from Ecclesiastes, the eyes never satisfied with seeing. And that's the line that rang through my head as I was watching um, the number of times that your cast of characters said, we want to make the unseen seen. Um, I want to see a black hole. Um, the appeals to computer simulation because it also renders the invisible visible or that beautiful vortex tank, um, something that Descartes would have loved um, with the perfectly swirling um, whirlpools. Um, in an age in which all of this data is born digital and is going to be analyzed digitally, why do you think there was such an obsession with making an image that we human beings with our limited access to the electromagnetic spectrum could actually capture an, in an image that we could um, put on our walls. Um, so that's the question about your, your cast of characters. Um, the question for you guys is um, those, those haunting animations. Um, uh, I, I wondered especially how you confronted the challenge of trying to visualize, for example, random, randomness. There's, there's one point at which we just get a sort of pixelated screen, which I thought was a kind of wonderful um, visual equivalent of, of white noise. And um, I, I think it, it would be fascinating to hear a little bit more about the thoughts that went into that. Um, another question that I had really does touch exactly on what you said in your introductory remarks, which is, um, the history of science has tried with, I must say, very limited success to emancipate itself from the biography. Um, there is a, an awful magnetism of using one person's biography 
as the ready-made narrative mold in which to frame a story of scientific development. And um, one thing I greatly admired about the film was just as you said, that this is a portrait of science as it really is, that is science as a collective. But this is a collaboration of people who, some of whom know each other absolutely intimately. So there are those scenes in the English stately home um, with three or four people who have been working together over decades together who are fast friends. But then there's the scene toward the end at which it's like some enormous academic cocktail party in which people who have been working at the ends of the earth, literally at the ends of the earth, all come to and say, oh, you're such and such. And um, my question is your thoughts about why these collaborations work. Um, um, at one point, um, Shep, the director, says you could really lose credibility easily in this game. Um, and it suggests that there have to be other mechanisms, other forms of trust that are built up, um, especially to keep the oath of secrecy, which bound the 250 plus collaborators um, for all of those months. And so I'm interested in what you learned about the glue, the social glue that holds such collaborations together, especially in an enterprise as sharply competitive as science is. And the third, the third question I had for you is about, once again, narrative forms. Um, and this is also a question for Simon, because I think he's also thought very deeply about this, um, which is the most, the most interesting, and it seems to me, the most verisimilar work that's being done these days in the history of science is work which draws together the most diverse threads, not only the lifelines of people, but the lifelines of things, often um, enormous global shifting trends of economic production, the migrations of people. This is a narrative challenge, which it seems to me we have only partly met. And it struck me in watching the film, especially the second time, um, that there's something about the film medium. There's something about the technique of cutting and montage and juxtaposition that creates narrative possibilities that are better suited to do justice to this kind of multidimensional history. Um, and I'd be very curious about your thoughts about what it's like to shift media from working as um, a textual historian to a film historian. Well, thank you very much for these comments and questions, Rainey. They're, I think they get at many of the key aspects of the, of the film. Let me uh, proceed in, in order. Uh, why imaging? Why this, what's seemingly archaic form of trying to get a picture of a black hole when you might have other analytic representations, you know, of of the intensity of light as a function of radius, and you see a bounce, and that indicates there may be a ring and so on. But why do you want to see a picture? It's, it, it seems to me what, for a long time, what, what the pictorial has offered, and it's this is not a con, just a contemporary aspect, but something that goes far back, is its open-endedness. And the openness of the visual, that you can get something very different from what you expect. It doesn't mean you always do, 
and there's there are obviously ways and in fact fears that you could distort images on the way to the page. But I think the hope of images more than certain analytic approaches or statistical approaches is that you might be really surprised by what you see. And I think that that sense that black holes, which had you know, the, the great LIGO experiments, which saw these gravity waves picked up at different stations on either side of uh, the United States and now including Italy, uh, those can give strong analytic force to the idea that there are black holes, but people wanted to see it, to be able to say, there is a black hole, and it looks roughly like what we expected. And so that's one aspect of it. Uh, I think that the, I think, I think in astronomy, there's also another aspect, which is that, uh, Astronomers have a particular attachment to the visual in a way that you know may exceed that of say particle physicists, uh, and the long tradition of being able to to see galaxies and Simon's written about the intent to disaggregate these nebula into discrete stars and the debates that surrounded that in the 19th century, uh, but this attempt to look into the world above has been very central to astronomy. It's not the only way of doing astronomy, but it's had a long tradition. Uh, I think that the animations, what I've tried to do increasingly in the films over the four films that I've made is to bring animation in more and more strongly. But one thing that is, I think, constant is that I never wanted the animations to be just illustrative, like here, Here's a you know a black hole hitting another black hole, and here's an animation of them hitting. I, I'm not interested so much in that, although the role of simulations in for the physicists is more representational, representational, or presentational abnilo that 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 than the animations say these black and white woodcut like animations that Ruth Lingford did in this film, and that I I, I collaborated with her and. Rob Moss in, in secrecy, we did something similar. Those are supposed, those in a way stand in a register that is not illustrative, but rather elusive. And in that elusive register, it, give, it gave the film a chance to breathe in a space of imagination and association. And, you know, to Paraphrase Freud, a black hole is never just a black hole uh, for the physicists and astronomers. Uh, it's always something else. It's the one-way membrane that, you know, uh, you can pass one way, but you can't come back. That is redolent of death. And they talk about that. And the idea of a black hole with time going backwards inside the inner horizon and the black hole uh in a way, as a as an as as something that's an emptiness, even within the emptiness of space. I mean, I think this haunts people, and even uh, among the hard-boiled mathematical physicists, there's something about the black hole that has this driving force of the elusive, and I wanted that to come through in the film. So that particular, those black and white, more woodcutty animations have, have one role. 
And then the, the simulations are something else. And then the physical simulations, the physical modeling of the vortex, I, I think is, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by physical models of immaterial things. I mean, I think they're, they're like a metaphysical joke in the best and most adorable sense. I mean, I, I, and they, there's a long history of them. Uh, certainly one thinks of Descartes, but Maxwell and Lodge. And I mean, there's a long 19th century history of this goes into the 20th century. Can you make water waves produce the Casimir effect that pulls two plates together? And then going back and looking at a problem in the 18th century, boats would approach the pier sideways and do great damage. And you know, coming back and saying, oh, that's just like quantum electrodynamics. And so I think this idea of the physicality of the world uh, as a way of grasping uh, these highly theoretical ideas appeals to me enormously. So in a way, the film tries to look, there's a, a sequence on sound. Jan 11 talks about how you can learn about the black holes colliding just by listening to the pulses that come from them. Uh, in simulations. There's the the vortex of physical uh, simulations or physical modeling, and there's the animations in, the, in, in, in these more digital forms. Uh, there's the theoretical work. I wanted to see the different sort of forms of, of inquiry life that organize themselves around the black hole, in part for themselves and in part because they signal to us something about how black holes stand for us in the, in the culture now, even within the scientific cultures, plural. Uh, on the collaboration, I think what drives people to collaborate in, in many fields, sometimes it's just a multiplication of work. You just have tasks that need to be extended beyond the capacity of an individual. But more interestingly, it's when nobody even in principle, can do these things themselves. The technique of imaging the black hole requires the coordination of observatories all over the world. You need a planet-sized telescope. And so the basic unit of analysis is a pair of observatories, not an observatory. And it's these cat's cradle of connections among the different observatories that provides a way of making this virtual mirror uh, of a telescope the size of the Earth. So at a first level, this has no center. There is, it's not even like CERN, which is a giant center of physics, but there's a director's office inside CERN. CERN is located on the French-Swiss border, and you can find the desk of the director in the director's office. I mean, it has a center, and or you could say its center is the detector or the control room. But there's no such thing here. And I, I found that appealing and interesting. But beyond that, there's a collaboration of the forms of expertise. Uh, that some people are good at repairing equipment at 15,000 feet when, you know, if you were flying an airplane, you'd be banned without uh, additional oxygen. But, you know, so people, you have to write down on cards when I was filming up there in the early scenes in the film, you know, I had to really make notes to myself because you really become stupid at 15,000 feet after a while. There's just not enough oxygen to think, quite aside from altitude sickness or the ability, you know, you think you're going to bound up some stairs and after three steps, you're not bounding anywhere. So, um, but 
I think that there are people that are good at repairing electronics and designing new backends of electronics and computer, computer vision and theory. There are people that are really good at, at uh, data analysis and um, programming. I mean, it's a, it's, it requires a great variety of different people to do this. And on the theory side, you see the same thing. Um, and Andy Strominger and Malcolm Perry and young Sasha Hako and Stephen Hawking talk about their complementarity. And there's one moment in the film where Andy turns to Malcolm and says, well, nobody can calculate a thousand terms without making a mistake. And uh, not even you, Malcolm. And Malcolm says, they're deadpan. Well, I could do 500, but I couldn't do a thousand. And he could do 500, but nobody can do that. So they have to bring in the computer. But Malcolm, you know, likes to set out on a path. And it was, there was a sort of a visual rhyme to that that I used of them hiking in the woods uh, where Andy says, you know, I like to just go straight up and the risk is I get completely lost and stuck. And Malcolm likes to go straight and true. Uh, the danger is if he's not going in the right direction, you don't get where you wanted to go at all. So I think that the, that sense of collaboration and that's what drives them together. Now, holding groups together in the Event Horizon Telescope or any of these big collaborations can, can also be difficult. There are institutional rivalries. People come with different sources of funding. People have different styles of work. There's issues of credit, attribution. I mean, it. it so it's, it's, it's often a balance between the you know the the clear benefit of collaborating and it can be difficult too um and then you asked about um forms of narrative uh which is a you know in a way f there are two kinds of density in a way that the density of 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 writing has many options that film would find very difficult to do without losing its peculiar advantages. For instance, in writing, you can hop back and forth among many, many sites all the time. And you can you can write in an encyclopedic way. You know, a book, I have a book uh, that I, I mean, uh, that I use often on nuclear waste and it's got sections on every major nuclear waste site in the world. You can't even start to do that in a film. You can't say there are three good examples of this in a film and provide them seriatim. It just, the film will die on the table. Um, I, film has to achieve density in uh, other ways. You can, you know, in another kind of density that's good in, in print is you can, you can, you know, you can play with multiple meanings. And since you, you know, you have authorial rights of control in some way you can you can weave themes in 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 all sorts of verbal ways that 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 you can you can design uh it's harder in film film takes its density with this act of simultaneity that you you know if you see two people talking and you're or three people talking and you see the reactions and how the group dynamic works that's almost impossible to replicate in print that the simultaneous reaction of, uh, I think of a, a an anthropological filmmaker who's 
filming a, a couple in a long shot and they're talking about a wedding, the wedding goods that are going to be exchanged. And the husband says something and the wife's just looking at him, you know, with a kind of incredulity that he's saying what something so stupid in her view. And you, you see these, these things at the moment. And it's not the same as saying, this is what he said. And then her reaction was one of incredulity. So I think that sense of density can be achieved in the materiality of a, of a moment of, of, a, of simultaneity. And uh, when film works well, it does that. And in this film, more than others that I've done, I've, I used a lot of verite uh, filming and things that were you know, carrying on. And in, 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 when you do that, even editing it, watching it for the 500th time, I, I see things that I didn't see uh, at the beginning. There's just an enormous inclusion in that, uh, in that moment-to-moment uh, grasp of things and people's reactions and tones of voice and, and so on. So I think that what I try to do in the film, because film tends to like being focused on individuals and I wanted to capture something that was not just a heroic story of, you know, a stranger, <laughs> a stranger comes to town, a man takes a trip. Uh, I, I wanted to, to see this as I, so I designed it to sort of build outward in the case of the event horizon telescope to start close in, um, Stephen Hawking's voice and then Shep going up the mountain and then you see a couple of three or four or five people and then it and then it sort of builds outwards um and and I think that you know learn learn trying to figure out how to represent this collaborative aspect without losing some sense of identification with the process was one of the great challenges of the film and then you know I I say finally in terms of narrative form uh all of the the, the three films recent films that well, not so recent but the three big films that I've done more recently uh on secrecy containment of nuclear waste containment and this uh, I have different stories that then interweave and I'd say one of the hardest things is figuring out how to end uh an episode of one without killing it and carrying on to, to another. So that's very difficult. If it's too sutured off, you don't want it to come back. If it's, in, if it's too much in media race, you don't want it to stop. So it has to be, it has to come to a kind of soft ending and then a soft pause and then cut to, to something else. And the cut has to make sense. So that's one of the narrative difficulties of making this kind of a film. Thank you, Peter. Uh, next, we have Simon Schaffer. Thank you for joining us, Simon. It's a great pleasure. In fact, it's a complete treat, exactly as Rainey just said, to be invited not only to watch this absolutely remarkable film, but also to get a chance to uh, talk together about it. It is, let me emphasize, a film about which it's extraordinarily tempting to speak. There's a huge amount of material here. Um, and that's really the first of the four points that I think I want to respond to, which has uh, already been raised, which is the metaphorical richness of the theme of the black hole. Um, black holes, it's been pointed out, are now a dead metaphor because they now really exist. 
Um, before then, it was a metaphor, let's not forget. And that metaphor turns out to be ridiculously polysemic from fiscal deficit to death. In other words, death and taxes and everything in between. And I think the film is brilliant at showing us how that works. So the first reflection would be to think about precisely what Peter's just said, this and the two previous films, Secrecy and Containment, form a kind of trilogy because they're all about how to make sense and above all how to picture how information and material leaks or escapes from what we thought was a secure place. And one of the most admirable and striking features of the film is the relationship that it proposes, but nowhere quite explicitly, between rendering the tacit dimensions of science visible and making an image of a black hole. And that is both less and more than a metaphor. And I think there's something very deep going on there about which a great deal can be said. In particular, like others, I found Ruth Lingford's animations completely remarkable from this point of view, because they break the visual surface of the film in a technical way that is achieved in only one other way in the film, which is that although it's brilliantly edited, it's deliberate that there are fades to black at regular intervals. And those fades to black do various jobs of work. And I just like to know a little more about the decision to do that with some of the edits and not with others. And that's just a fascinating point about the aesthetics and the reflexive aesthetics of the film. And also this notion of picturing what cannot be pictured, but also picturing what in all sorts of ways one does not want to be pictured. So Dolman at various points, quite understandably, tells the group how dangerous it would be to leak after the collaboration of the four sections of the image team and the appalling cost of releasing an image which would then immediately become material for a paper out of control of the HTC. It's a fascinating moment in the culture of contemporary astrophysics. A second point then is, this goes back precisely to what Rainey absolutely astutely points to, which is the attempt to get round the problem of life, of biography here. I mean, obviously there's a shattering biographical event in the middle of the film, which is Hawking's death. And the way that is both dealt with and bypassed is fascinating for me, not just because of the biographical and metaphorical heft of that loss, but also because if there's an example in public culture over that period of a figure who seemed to be able to communicate across a barrier one could not imagine being surpassed, it is that figure. 
And that's absolutely fascinating, especially given that the film decides to begin with these two emblems of remoteness, Hawking's voice and the Mexican mountain. Um, two places, as one might say, where breathing is in question. Then, more specifically, there's a question that we've already begun to reflect upon, which is what is it that we are being shown here? After all, in technical terms, this is a resolution of the region immediately around a black hole. There's a great deal of discussion, and the film beautifully conveys this discussion, about whether we're going to use terms like shadow or silhouette, which are certainly not synonyms, whether um, it's even plausible that such an image could be made at all, a claim which, if I've understood the history, is only two decades old and dates back to the work of Heino Falker and his group in 2000, who really made it plausible that such a project might work. But what is that project? This is not an image of a black hole. And very often, the astrophysicists in question are very careful to make sure that we don't make that mistake. And very often, they're careful to make sure that we do. And I'm fascinated by that shift between qualifying and not qualifying, modalizing and not modalizing what it is that we have in front of our eyes here. Um, I'm, as it were, at least as impressed by the completely amazing footage of the arrival of data of the arrival, as one of your participants says, of the photons, um, that this has accumulated more data per night than, quote, any previous experiment in the history of science, unquote. I think that's true. I actually think that that's true. And that what Aperture Synthesis plus the HTC has done is a transformation of quantity into quality. And the way that's rendered on film is completely startling. And it's at least as startling as the discussion about whether this is a shadow or a silhouette or the thing in itself. That seems really fascinating to me. And the way that's filmed and then edited is quite striking. And I'd love to hear about the decisions that were made around that. And then there are the rather obvious points to make, so I won't resist making them, which is that in my field, after all, one of the main claims is that what really matters in the labour of the sciences is what cannot be seen, that the transmission of knowledge is both invisible and capricious. And so the challenge to film the collective and to film transmission, in all senses of that word, is a disciplinary as well as a cinematographic challenge. And I think it's fascinating that that challenge has been so well met here. Um, we know anecdotally of various episodes around the preparation for release in April 2019, in which particular characters were singled out, 
Katie Bowman would be the obvious example to choose there. She appears in the film in several ways. Um, the appalling treatment that she was subjected to by online trolling, um, I think, needs to be mentioned. The relation between authoring, the question of which algorithms were used to make the image, all of that is clearly related to what Peter has already referred to in his initial response, which is tension and contention, and how challenging it must have been and proved to be, as I guess, to show not just collectivity, but also its limits. Um, and the way in which um, to make a film from within these institutions, whether they be the HTC or whether they be the um, English utopia of Brinsop Court, which is clearly designed to make theorists look like theorists. Um, all of that looks irenic, but we know it was not. We absolutely know it was not. And that, I think, raises some really interesting questions. So in closing, I'd just like to say uh, everyone had to watch the film. And if you're watching this broadcast and you haven't watched the film, you're at a slight disadvantage, so please go and get a copy at once. Um, I think it will become not just a cinematic but a disciplinary classic, which I think is a really interesting question for us over the next period. And as I say, the ways in which it proposes to use many different modes of examining just how what might be said to be enclosed and secured could ever get out, could ever open up, that seems to me to be actually quite an important moral intervention as well as one within the discipline and within cinema. And I think that deserves enormous admiration. Well done. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. Uh, these are wonderful comments too. And I, I uh, let me start with the animations, uh, with, with Ruth's animations. You know, one of the things that happened with the animation is that sometimes we'd think of a piece of animation going in one place and then it would fit better in another. Uh, because the animations themselves are not illustrative, they're not, here's, here's an animation of a hard drive being put into the supercomputer, uh, but rather these more elusive structures meant that the placement evolved as we moved along. And um, and I should say that we worked with with Ruth and with the other uh, other other collaborators, Zoe Keating, we haven't mentioned the music um, at all, but she designed, she wrote and performed uh, the vast majority of the music. There's a, a piece of Bach by, that's performed by Yo-Yo Ma who let us use that, but that's, uh, <laughs> that stands in its own place in the film. It's a longer story. There's sound designers uh, we worked with, but we worked with our, our, our principal collaborators, we being Child King, the, edit, the great editor with whom I've collaborated over uh, 15 years. Um, 
I've, I've, I don't, I didn't want, and I don't want to import music at the end. I think of music and sound as part of the construction of the film itself. I think of editing as part of the film itself. So we edited over the whole time from 2016 to 2020, 2021, when we finished it. Um, uh, Zoe, you know, when we had uh, in classic fashion, you have these cards, file cards of different colors with each major uh, scene on the wall, different colors for the philosophical elusive side, one for the EHT and one for the, uh, for the theorists. And then Zoe began to think about ways to thematize the music that would go under those. So as we were building the structure of the film, we were also building the structure of, of the music. So I just bring that in as a parallel to the work of the, anima of, of the animation. Then there is a more, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a set piece in the film about Andrea Gez and her work where we use uh, Glynis Fox, who's a, a, a graphic novelist. And she, you know, we worked with the graphic novel sequence about that. That plays a different role in the film. Um, but the idea of the animations breaking surface, I think is a, is a, is a very, a uh, resonant comment for me, you know, when we were, when I was working on secrecy, I thought about the animation there as being the unconscious of the film, that there was this kind of lurking anxiety of what it meant to hold secrets underneath this, you know, people in daylight, so to speak. Uh, so someone would be talking about the search for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and you'd see uh, somebody, in fact, a soldier with a American soldier with a, a flashlight, breaking locks and going and looking for these things, and then it would morph into a uh, an animation where all sorts of things were coming. You know, rockets were coming out, and the face of uh, Bin Laden would sort of lurk in the shadows somewhere. Uh, it was uh, it, it's a, it served as a kind of underneath for the film, and here too, uh, this thoughts about you know, the terror of the black hole or the anxiety that's associated with it or elusive of death or the end of the, you know, the, the end, the, the astronomers talk about the life cycle of stars. Well, the, the, the death of the star is this. Uh, so the black hole serves it in a kind of immediately implanted way in the story that astronomers tell about their own uh, objects of study, but also in this more elusive and expansive way. Um, yeah, you know, there are different kinds of cuts in the film. I mean, as in all film, I mean, there are match cuts where something will, you know, a loud noise here will become something that makes loud noise somewhere else. There are um, jump cuts and there, I mean, so there are different kinds of cuts, but a fade to black is a particular thing. And I think one of the aspects of the film, because it's a, the concepts in the film are challenging and we try to sort of bring them in multiple ways to, 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 to our grasp, whether it's in the materiality of swirling dyed water or, or sound or uh, equations or computer outputs or simulations or uh, images, uh, that there are moments when you just need to stop and you know, have room to breathe and think. And, um, and sometimes that void uh, we brought to it, it, with black and black is a theme throughout the film. A lot of the, the characters 
that we did film in studio are lit in front of a, a black screen. It's not a green screen that goes black. It's a black screen that we have sort of distorted uh, light images projected through glasses and other piece, you know, pieces of broken glass and so on to make small bits of, of glass to give it some depth. But that idea of spatiality, of emptiness, of openness is uh, it was something that I did have in mind with those cuts to black. Um, on leaks, <laughs> uh, you know, when I started the film, one of the pleasures was I wasn't going to have to deal with nuclear secrecy for the first time in three films. You know, I did film on the hydrogen bomb, the, the, the you know, filming at Los Alamos, filming at, at these nuclear waste sites, filming, you know, around uh, secrecy. So I, it was funny, I mean, ironic in a way to see secrecy come back. You know, I started thinking that, you know, this is going to be completely open. I knew many of these characters. This was, this, this in a sense was my world as opposed to, you know, an alien planet somewhere else. Uh, and so, but it, it became clear, this became the this biggest secret. And so one of the things that I found that I really wanted to communicate in the film was this sudden, you know, momentary jump at 9.07 a.m. Eastern time uh, on April 10th, 2019, between the biggest secret that it had been. People, people were not telling their families. People were not telling... I mean, people, nobody should, it was really secret. It did not leak for a year. I mean, imagine 214 academics not talking. I mean, it's what we do for a living. We talk, we love to share things uh, that we find. And so that was, and then suddenly at this moment, it became the, you know, this image that was everywhere. The analysts tell us a billion people saw it in the first 48 hours. So um, it became the most unsecret thing in the world from being this, big secret for, for a year. Uh, and I think the, the other side of that is something that um, both of you have thought about and we've thought about together, which is um, how, 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 how secrecy and, and, and disclosure play in science has been a fundamental part woven in and out of science from its early days. And it's, science is proud of its openness and covetous of its secret of its secretiveness and um it's often in 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 moments hard on each other that we see that um the cost of a leak i think was you know not a national <laughs> security issue but as as i mean as you mentioned it was that there would be this um a loss of control and not just that other people might use it but also that it might be wrong and we we've all known people who have gone to press too soon with results been shown to be wrong and then it you know it's it's as many jokes capture you know it's hard to regain your reputation uh so it's hard to get to be believed if you do that uh and then the biography and the way i mean that is a problem that is um that haunted me throughout. I mean, how much I didn't want this to be a film. It's not a film just about Stephen Hawking. It's and it's not about a, a side of Stephen Hawking that is everywhere always. Uh, it's it was about you know Stephen asking a question or you know what about this? And I think that Sasha 
said something, Sasha Heiko said something very apt. She was a graduate student during most of the film, and then she finishes t- towards the end. And uh, I should say, I, 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 I loved seeing the film as it was developing. I could see in the edit room her confidence building as she goes from those first scenes to the last scenes, and rightly so. She's enormously gifted scientist. Um, but one of the things that I liked about being able to see these people together, at, you know, and aware of their differences and different abilities was the way this enabled collaboration. I tried to, you know, I was, uh, I was very aware uh, astronomy like physics uh, has been sexist in lots of profound and harmful ways over time. And I tried in the film to give voice to the women in the collaboration and, and, and beyond. That was something that was important to me in, the, in you know, it's an expansive sense of collaboration, but that dimension of diversity was, was significant. I wanted the, I mean, the brings up versus the, the conditions of work at brings up uh, versus the, you know, sort of stark white rooms and the airless chambers of the observatory was uh, really striking. And I must say that when the theorists saw the how their other half lived, they were shocked that they worked in such appallingly difficult conditions. And the experimentalists were shocked in the other way. They said they couldn't believe that these people were living in the lap of luxury and sipping wine in an estate, especially for my British collaborators who could read with vivid clarity what Brinzop signified, uh, that sense of, 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 of things was, was striking. I mean, I think that in a way there's an intuition that we have about handwork, headwork that's been thought about a lot. You've thought about a lot about Simon. We've talked about that a lot with Rainey. Um, but it was really stark here. Um, not that all the work on the EHT is handwork, but there was a kind of difference of circumstance, so to speak. Um, I think that the, you know, the delivery of the data that you pointed to, Simon, I mean, I found that endlessly amusing. I mean, this is just the kind of thing that amuses me to pieces. It's like the moment in Einstein's clocks, Poincaré's maps, where, you know, I were working on that. I found that they were pumping time under the streets of, of Paris in tubes, these pulsed air. Of, and the idea of pumping time um, then became a theme in the collaboration William Kentridge and I did about the refusal of time. And uh, here, the idea of delivering boxes of, of photons, of boxes of data, you know, frozen photons, as, as, as Shep Dolman says, from coming from Chile, from, the, uh, from Alma, and then later from the South Pole. I mean, those are, it's just very funny. I mean, here are these, these 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 photons spend 55 million years getting to us, and then, you know, they, they get put in a box and shipped by Federal Express. Uh, so it's uh, uh, or that that's the way you get data around. Anyway, I thank you both very much for these comments. Maybe we can have a few minutes to chat more generally. Yeah, no, I'm just struck um, by the this. A vivid image of the underneath of the film, um, putting it together with the metaphorical echo chamber of the animations. Um, this is this is something 
that I think really could not be conveyed textually, which is the unconscious of silence. I mean, this is really, um, there's a kind of collective unconscious, you know, with apologies to Durkheim, um, um, a great deal of the collective is about the collaboration, as you both rightly stressed. But there is also a collective unconscious, which is feeding this entire enterprise. Um, it's it's there's a kind of um, libido sciendi, you know, uh, the the desire to know, um, which is in some sense I must say unreasonable and obsessive, and I think that's part of the fascination of this. Um, I'm sure, Peter, you've talked with astrophysicists. I certainly have as who um, my, my colleagues in the Max Planck Society, I will not name names, you can guess, um, who are very dismissive of this whole project. And I think that's partly jade green envy. But I also think it's because um, they, they sense that there's something about the way in which not just financial um, and material resources, but libidinal in resources were invested in this project, which is a threat to their projects in some ways. Yeah, I think that that sounds just right, doesn't it? And there's such a long history about that envy as as well. I mean, it's barely compensated by the extremely good furnishings that you get in Herefordshire, I would say. The more serious point that also goes along with that, which I'd love for Peter to say a little more about, is when and how did you decide to follow both projects? Because a priori, one might have thought, given your absolutely central position in the black hole group in Harvard and participation in the HTC, that's a film, right? The Event Horizon Telescope is clearly a, a movie. Um, and to cut backwards and forwards with the information paradox work seems to me to have part of what's given the film its extraordinary power. And I just wondered, was that always on the cards? Did you suddenly realize that these would be developing together? Say say a bit more about those decisions because it's fascinating. Well, in the in the beginning, I I I mean, I we had this black hole initiative at Harvard, which Andy Strominger and Shep Doleman are also part of, along with 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 three others, a mathematician and a astrophys two other astrophysicists. Um, and, you know, there were some things that I, I so I, I had from the beginning wanted to make something that would go back and forth between theory and observation. I didn't, I thought I might do a, 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 a section on LIGO, um, but I, in the end, I, it was a little bit like the decision that I made in, um, in containment not to talk about Chernobyl very much. It was only a kind of grace note. And in both cases, the major work had happened. Uh, uh, you know, in the case of LIGO, the great discovery was 2015, September. And uh, I, I didn't want to make a retrospective film. I wanted to make an unfolding film. And that was really 
key. And then I thought that the visual and non-visual aspect, I mean, I, I did what I could to make some visualizations for the image, for the uh, information loss paradox, but it's, it's not fundamentally a visual problem. And neither Malcolm nor Andy, nor, nor Hawking, although Hawking uses diagrams, are really fundamentally visual thinkers. And so uh, I, I thought that was interesting too. I mean, it goes back to you know a longstanding interest I have in not only in the role of images, but in anti-images, the kind of iconoclasm and iconophilia that, that seem to enter hand in hand. That images can reveal and we need them and individuals can deceive and we have to avoid them. That, that, that we have to hold that in our heads. Can I ask a counterfactual question, Peter? Which is, events delivered you a boffo ending. I mean, um, you, I, one could not ask. Um, you, you might as well have um, scored this in a kitschy fashion with trumpet fanfares and drum rolls. What would have happened if um, teams one through four in that um, thrilling moment in which they pool their results to see if there's convergence, what would have happened if it was closer to zero rather than to one? And they had to go back to the drawing board. I mean, what did you did you and your your collaborators think about that kind of ending? Oh yeah, there's a there's a a brief scene where Katie and 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 Andrew Chael are talking the night late the night before that meeting, and they're both worried like, what happens if we don't agree? I mean, there are two ways that that could have happened. No one could have gotten a ring, or some people could have gotten a ring and others not. If some people had gotten a ring and others not, then I think there would have been intense work to try to understand the discrepancy. If no one had gotten a ring, that would have been much more cataclysmic. Um, and the Hawking, Strominger, Perry, Hako collaboration could have also failed. I mean, it did fail during the course of filming, and then it it kind of picked up again. I mean, it, not just because of Stephen Hawking's death, but um, but because the, they they were not converging on an answer, they were getting zero, and they were getting infinity, and they and they, they were trying to get a particular number, this number that I've sort of made into the Maltese Falcon of the film as uh, 12J, which they're constantly tracking, and they're getting it, they're not getting it, and it became the kind of stand-in for the for the search. I, I maybe I come back to oh, Stephen. Um, Stephen Hawking's death, which Simon asked about, uh, I tried, you know, in the midst of a period that was very difficult, um, I, I did try editing different ways, and I tried, I thought it would be interesting and resonant to have both the private reactions of his collaborators and friends and this immensely public, you know, parades and ceremonies and, I mean, world attention, but that didn't work at all. As soon as I cut to, you know, BBC footage or newscasts or announcements, the film just died. It just was, it was like, it lost everything. And so eventually uh, I thought, and it seemed right at a kind of ethical level as well to keep inside the reaction of his, of this small group of collaborators. But that, that I tried a lot of things before I understood what I just said.
Thank you all very much. This has been really terrific. Yes, thank um, you. I appreciate it enormously. I couldn't have two more insightful, better watchers of this film than you two, collaborators both. Thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. It used to be we'd walk up to the podium and arrange our papers. Now we face the webcam and arrange our windows. Um, so we have questions coming already. Uh, we have two questions about the afterlife of the image. One is how it's changed things to have that image, either for you or the, for the folks in the collaboration. And then Kathy Olesko asks a specific question, um, starting with the title of the film as Black Holes, the Edge of What We Know, emphasizing the physicist conundrum of having the responsibility of seeking new knowledge and not being able to access information that's lost in the black hole and where the physicists bemoaned what couldn't be known or what was lost. Um, so the black hole is an epistemological problem as much an existential one. And in the results, uh, she asks, when you see the image, knowledge is gained through this massive collaborative experiment. So her question is, can you comment on how the boundary between the knowable and the unknowable has changed as a result of this experiment? Well, um... Kathy Lesko's question is right on target. And in fact, her intuition about the bright spot or the bright crescent in the south of the image as something like a Doppler shift is exactly correct and technically correct. It is in fact the swirl of the billion degree gas that's moving towards us that gets Doppler shifted towards the brighter uh, that, uh, that, that that you're seeing there. Now, exactly what part of that flow, is it part of this huge jet that comes out or part of the accretion disk that orbits around the black hole, that's still something that's being worked out. But it is the movement of hot gas that causes that bright crescent. That's, that's, that's solid. Um, and she's also right that the title is a play back and forth between on the one side, the the, ed the edge of, of all we know in terms of the current state of science and the more fundamental epistemological limit that past the horizon, we cannot, we cannot know, or at least we cannot know and retrieve. And we could fly past it and know and then disappear and uh, forever. But that's, um, I, th on the third part of her question, uh, which really is, you know, what, what is the relationship between the information lost and the information in a black, when something falls into a black hole and the information that you gain by studying the swirling gas around it. The swirling gas around the black hole is an indicator, a kind of probe of the extreme space-time at the immense curvature near the horizon. Uh, the information that's lost is about the origin of the black hole. It's this fundamental tenet of physics since really the time of Newton and Laplace that if you knew the current state of the world that the law, and you knew the laws of physics that you could determine how things got to be the way they were, like reconstructing where the billiard balls were before the particular moment that you're looking at them. And that was very upsetting and remains very upsetting to physicists that, the, that this idea of the ability to recoup the information of the past from the current state of things is violated by black holes as it's not violated by any other object in the known universe. 
And that's really upsetting. And that's why this information loss paradox lies so central to many scientists. Um, Peter, we have a question about your shift to making movies instead of written publications. Can you talk a little bit about how that's been received? And I think we have a young scholar who's asking about the prospects for engaging in similar activity um, in, in, in the context of needing to publish a lot as a young scholar. So I, I, I've never thought about uh, film as a substitute for writing. I think of it as a way of dimensionalizing writing. That is to say that writing and filming or writing and exhibitions or writing uh, material objects, you know, there, there are many other ways to complement what writing does so well. And so I started a program with a colleague, Lucien Casting-Taylor, where graduate students from all different departments could learn about digital media, whether it's ethnographic audio or installation or multi-screen or single channel film um, or interactive web as a way of complementing or adding to the work that they were doing on their theses. And that I think works very well. You know, there's a strategic question and a more epistemological question. The strategic question is, would it be a good idea for students to be able to just do a film or an interactive website or an ethnographic audio installation instead of a thesis? And there are some places that have begun to explore that. I, at a strategic level, I think probably I would hesitate about recommending that to anybody, especially a young scholar, because so much of the evaluation structure and gatekeeping of the academy uh, depends on, on writing. Um, and there are people who, don't, who think of film as a vehicle of popularization, not a vehicle of inquiry. I, I think of it as a vehicle of inquiry, but I, so that's a strategic answer. The epistemic answer is, I think there are things that writing does better than film. Um, if you have many, many sites or you know, you're cutting back and forth in radically different times to try to track the history of a concept or a practice, uh, writing can do much better. If you wanna give three examples of something and make it persuasive in a written medium, that works pretty well. If you in a film stop to give three examples of something, the audience, no one can watch, it's unwatchable, it's not film. It's film, it's a slideshow maybe, but it's not film. So there are things that, 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 that writing can do really well. You can also, because it's not a time-based medium per se, you can skip, you know, you can read the introduction, the conclusion, the chapter titles, you can get the thesis of a book. We read, you know, we have different reading strategies for philosophy, for poetry, for history. Um, Film progresses on the whole, you know, modulo, skipping ahead using a high speed uh, pass through the film. And it's, it's, it, it, it moves progressively and over time in this more systematic way. The density of film is around capturing the materiality, the simultaneity of things. You know, if I had to describe you, Bobak, on this screen in writing, and I had to simultaneously say the book's on the shelf and what's on that cart and you and the expression on your face and what you're saying, I would be lost. It's impossible. Writing doesn't allow that 
simultaneity of presentation. Its density is elsewhere. Its density is in the analytical structure and in, in, in history writing anyway, or the evocation of a, of a place. But in, in film, you can see things simultaneously. You can see two people looking at each other and interacting and a, you know, a look of dubious astonishment uh, in one person while the other person's speaking. You can see somebody whose words are undermined by their facial expression. There's a density of place and structure that you can, you can work, but it's not in words. The number of words in a film is tiny compared to a book or even an article. So I, I see these as, I see writing and film as having two different kinds of density that allow us to grasp the world in complementary ways. Um, yeah, that's, right. that's, that's how I'd answer that good question and completely appropriate question by a young scholar. Um, there's two related questions. One notes that you began the movie at the bottom of the hill where one of the Event Horizon Telescope instruments is placed and found it very impactful to place it uh, considering the realm of ideas at a very distant place from the material richness of Harvard and some of the other places, and is asking if that choice was deliberate and if you would explain it further. And um, another one is asking about the discussion you had, which touched on sexism in astronomy and physics, and to what extent you consider exploring questions about racism and colonialism, and particularly in the light of the long history of empire and dispossession as a foundation of the kind of um, scale and ambition of modern astronomy and the experiment at the center of the film. So two related questions about how you place the film and the role of the events in the larger world of such inequality. Yeah, I mean, they're very good questions. And, you know, different telescopes have had different relations to their surrounding communities. And, you know, they were famous well covered by the international press disputes in Hawaii, uh, for instance, about control of the mountaintops um, and their indigenous significance as, you know, and different groups had valued the mountaintops for different reasons. Uh, I think one of the many key factors here is exactly the perceived wealth. There's a German telescope that's being erected in a an impoverished uh, site. It, not was the mountain itself wasn't disputed, but the surrounding land. Uh, you know, as soon as pe people saw it, thought this telescope was a good idea, but as soon as it became clear that there was this immense wealth in in in, in immediate proximity to extreme poverty, it it is problematic in a completely understandable way. Um, it's not the been the focus of the of the film that I made here. I chose, you know, you have to ch choose your battles. I really wanted to represent the strong presence of women in astronomy, partly as a countermeasure to what I've seen as, um, I mean, not that physics is any better, but I mean, to the physical sciences have been worse, say, than the biological sciences, I think, in their in the representative um, structures of of um, of, you know, who, who, who becomes an astronomer and who feels safe and respected in these remote sites and in other places. So I, I do think these are issues that, that, that are important to think about. Uh, we have on the Event Horizon Telescope and I'm on it, the, a committee on diversity and inclusion. And that's been something that has been important to me. Uh, I have other, you know, there's a, I have other films where some of those other issues are 
front and center, um, you know, containment. For instance, I was focused to a certain degree on a African American community that's hard, hard located against the South Carolina nuclear uh, weapons site um, at Savannah River. So, and I, so there, there, I, you know, I think that these. I, I think these are issues for astronomy. They're issues for the sciences. They're issues for universities, and they're important. We have a cluster of questions by John Krieger and Anna Maria Meister and Cameron Brinser about uh, developing consensus and in such global experiments. And if you could talk more about bringing together knowledge and people across the world. And uh, one of them in particular reflects on the questions of how experiments end about how arguments emerge. And if this, and John Krieg asks, is this more than just a disciplinary film, but a kind of political engagement and tells us something about how scientific consensus is built? I really wanted the idea and the feel of collaboration to come through in this film. I mean, if I said, if there were two things that I knew from the beginning, it was one that I wanted to see the science unfolding and not as an explanation or representation after the fact. I mean, the first film I made many years ago on the hydrogen bomb debate was about the period from 1949 to 52, roughly speaking. I mean, it was long past. I thought it was important because I wanted to make a film about science that put the ethical political dimension front and center. But I couldn't, you know, there was very little I could, I mean, I couldn't go back to 19. So I could use archival footage and I did and other, you know, still images and so on, but it's different. And I wanted this to follow that. The other is science, I mean, as, 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 as John Krieger, who's worked on many problems where collaboration was central, including the development of CERN, knows that, you know, these are not individual achievements, but they're structures that try to reinscribe, like the Nobel Prize, the individual nature of science, even when it's accorded to somebody who's standing in for 100 or 500 or 2000 uh, physicists and an equal number of engineers. So I wanted to, I wanted to make a film that gave you a material sense, a, a, vis a, a really virtual presence in these moments of what it meant to be able to reason together and argue and see people trying to figure out how they're complementary and not identical skills. This is not a lot of people doing the same thing. There's a lot of people doing a lot of different things. As far as the international side goes, I, you know, the, the great problems that face us, whether it's the pandemic or global warming, uh, I mean, you know, large scale inequality in the world are problems that, are, that can't be really faced down individually, much even nationally. So I, I always thought of, in a way, this film as being something of a kind of, I don't know, an, an, an exemplification of what it meant to try to bring people together from dozens of different institutes, the multiplicity of languages and cultures uh, of different ages from someone who's barely 20 to people who are the most senior people who helped found the modern science of radio astronomy in their 80s, uh, I thought that would be really interesting. And so in a way, 
I do think of it as having a political dimension, not, not explicitly, it's not about party politics, but, a, but in the notion of, of collaboration, even across differences. John Krieger would like to, would also like to know more about the extraordinary music and about how and when it was integrated into the film. Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, Zoe Keating is a musician I've uh, hugely admired and I really wanted the, I really wanted the music to be built in the beginning. The first film I made, it was dropped in at the end and I hated that. You know, I found music or even in one case got a composer to compose something to the film as it existed. But here with, with, with Zoe, uh, and I recommend her music to you um, if you don't know it already, uh, she worked with us from early on in the project, maybe a year in, into the four or five year making of this film. And for example, you know, when, we, when I make a film, I use a very old fashioned method of like file cards stuck with magnets on a giant board with different color codes for the different themes, the philosophical, allusional, uh, cultural side of black holes, the theoretical problem resolving the information loss paradox and the event horizon telescope. And so with Zoe, we were, you know, she proposed three musical themes that would be attached to each of those so that it began, you know, in a, in a, in a way that doesn't immediately draw attention to itself, but reinforces the meaning and, and, and sort of motive force of the film uh, by having the music really integrated into this three strand uh, rope that goes through the film. David Dvorkin wants to make a comparison with the LIGO team, which detected gravitational waves and points out that once they, they, they set out to prove they could do something and once they could do it, he asked, how did they turn their facility from a test instrument into an observatory? And will, E8, will the Event Horizon Telescope do something similar going from demonstrating it exists to making it operational as an instrument? It will. The, the, I mean, I think LIGO is one of the most beautiful experiments in the history of science. And, it, but it ha, there are some important differences. Uh, probably the most important one of which is it has a center, or you know, a couple of centers. It's it's in uh, it's in Washington State, and it's Louisiana. It's in Italy, and there are new 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 aspects being built elsewhere. But these are billion dollar facilities. These are gigantic investments uh, in the first instance by the National Science Foundation and then by other national and more than national entities. The Event Horizon Telescope had a budget up to the time of the 2019 release of, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 million dollars. It's a tiny fraction. So it was a kind of jujitsu of using existing uh, major radio telescopes uh, that were already in prosperous existence elsewhere and coordinating them. In a certain sense at a technical administrative level, what the Event Horizon Telescope was, was a, a way of using atomic clocks to coordinate and synchronize these different telescopes. But now having shown that this image could be made, there are now much more detailed questions that can be asked. Um, you know, is the ring that we see is a blurry ring around the black hole, can it be seen with you know, in its, in polarized light, which is one set of papers that just came out or the next, the next um, 
generation, uh, you know, we're already, could we put a telescope in outer space in Earth orbit or in high Earth orbit or out at the, at, at L2, a million miles from the Earth? Much bigger baseline gives you finer resolution. Um, uh, all of these projects would involve multinational cooperation uh, and the project itself has grown from, I think when I joined maybe, I don't know, 60 people, 50 people. When publication occurred, maybe 200 people. Uh, it's now three, 350 or 400. So it's grown a lot and people have, and that expands possibilities in building new telescopes and locating them, thinking of making telescopes where you need them, not where they happen to have been built by earlier generations of, uh, of astronomers. So I, I think David's questions is, is, is very appropriate. Um, and I think as, one of the future goals would be to study not just this black hole, not just the black hole at the center of our own, our own Milky Way galaxy, but hundreds or maybe thousands of black holes, which you could do if you could put telescope in space or telescopes in space and begin to get the kind of broad understanding of the, the, the demographics of black holes, the way you could never understand the main sequence of stars uh, by just looking at our sun. You do it by looking at many stars, and that's what what's one of the hopes that could be done if if in a in a further generation of work. Uh, Tomas Uriburu uh, has a question about the final image in terms of his scientific objectivity, and he wants to know about uh, the process of merging multiple images into one, and that being driven by an idea of how black holes should look. So, how should we think about the objectivity of this final image? That's a very <laughs> appropriate question. Uh, when Lorraine Daston and I wrote Objectivity, the book, uh, we, we had in mind sort of three layered aspects of objectivity uh, in parodying, in a sense, the argument. It was that in the 18th century, the, there was a, a strong sense that an idealized image was a better way of looking at an object rather than the particular skull or clover leaf or anything else that you were looking at because why would one care about the accidental imperfections of this skeleton or that that cloud when you could look at the ideal version a second was this idea of mechanical objectivity where the goal was to render an individual object with as little intervention as possible and a third was um the use of judgment and that developed in the 20th century where you would say, no, I'm not gonna show you what came out of this magnetic image of the solar fields because I know that some of those are artifacts created by the instrument. So my team or I will fix those things because we know where the machine fails. And in the Event Horizon Telescope image that you see, in a sense, things worked backwards. You know, they. It's like playing the movie backwards. We started with um, using judgment, having these teams, each one of which did the best they could to get an image. And, you know, no holds barred, get the image, and then don't tell anything or show anything to the other groups, and then compare them. Then we said, okay, now let's do something that's like mechanical objectivity. Let's do a systematic survey, a parameter survey, all the settings of the telescope that you could imagine, like taking your camera and trying every f-stop and every focal length and every lens and, um, and every shutter speed 
and seeing what you got. And then a third was um, taking these things and forming a kind of ideal image by averaging them together. You know, in other words, putting them together in such a way that any individual, you know, something showed up only on one image, it would be suppressed by averaging them. If you, if it showed up in all three, you know, in on all, all three of the images we were putting together, it would be more accentuated. So, in a sense, object long answer to a very precise question, but I think all three aspects of objectivity, idealization, mechanical objectivity, and judgmental objectivity occur, although in reverse to historical order in the creation of these images. Um, Matt Hofarth has a question about friendship and collaboration and camaraderie. And clearly in the film, it shows how friendship is valuable. Um, but were there cases where friendship, uh, being afraid to offend someone, not, not asking questions, uh, was an obstacle to getting work done and getting the results? There certainly were frictions in the collaboration. Um, you can't put 200 people together and expect everyone to be in accord on all the scientific or technical issues. There were issues of of, of, of credit. Uh, there are questions of the different career stages. There are people, younger people who are more at a more vulnerable stage of their careers and who um, were graduate students, postdocs, in one case, an undergraduate, um, and, and, and people who were secure in their employment, people who were staff scientists, uh, differences between Europe, Asia, United States, many other places. So there were times when, when there were frictional encounters. The flip side of that, I think the, the question asks is, were people afraid of speaking out or questioning a result because they were friends? My, my own experience was that more harmful was the, were the cases where friction had developed over people feeling not sufficiently recognized or credited rather than not asking questions. I, mean, I wasn't in every group. I was mainly in the image making group because that's what interested me most. And there, I think people, people's trusting, trust in one another made it possible for them to ask questions without either the person being asked questions of or the questioner feeling like they were suppressed or attacked. There was something about an environment where people could sp speak within a kind of, with enough trust and faith in each other's will to make it work so that they could ask hard questions because eventually these these questions would come out in a less supportive and colder world. Uh, and uh, so everyone, everyone pretty well understood that this event had to be, this thing had to be, this picture had to be defensible. And in fact, there was almost a year or 10 months between the time the image first appeared and when it was disclosed. And those 10 months were about, you know, what if this happens, will it go away? What if we, you know, look at a wider angle of view. What if we uh, change the way we're using machine learning? Or what if we, I mean, there are all these questions and the what if questions was what kept everybody up at night. 
Sarah Ortman wonders whether it's plausible that soft hair, the existence of soft hair in a black hole, might have empirical and observable consequences. That's a hard question. Um, I'd say the question behind that question is, could we ever observe Hawking radiation? Hawk, um, Hawking discovered, it were deduced, that black holes should in fact radiate, that they're not entirely black, and that over very long periods of time, like comparable to the age of the universe or longer, a big black hole could evaporate. So uh, if there's soft hair, and if this, if, this, if this method of resolving the information loss paradox proves its worth over time, you'd be able to show not only what Hawking and his collaborators did show, which is that the soft hair could store enough information to record that which was that which entered the black hole, which formed the black hole. But you would want to be able to show two other things that are very important. One is how precisely, say, if you drop an electron in, it actually disturbs and encodes that information, not just calculating how much information could be stored there, but how it actually would work. And then later, as the Hawking radiation emerges and is modified by this soft hair, would it carry out that information? If, a, if, a, if an Earth-like planet fell into a black hole, and altered the soft hair around it, would eventually the Hawking radiation carry that information out to far distances. And so really prove, that's what you'd want to show theoretically, to show that in fact, um, the information was not lost. Now, whether you could eventually detect Hawking radiation and even more precisely recover information from it is a question probably for the very long term one that's not gonna be resolved anytime soon. But yes, in principle, you could measure this tiny amount of radiation that comes from a black hole and you could study it further and see if it could extract the, extract the information that had been encoded uh, in the soft hair. Peter, I wonder about the folks that you were interviewing. You included folks at all levels of seniority and juniorness um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the YouTube era, in the Instagram era, in the Zoom era. In contrast to older films, like say Day After Trinity, where the folks who were interviewed were already public figures. And I wonder how aware you were as a movie maker or had to deal with their awareness of this self-presentation as individuals, as members of the team, as representatives of Harvard University and other institution, and how that interacted, how that interfered or supported your efforts as a filmmaker. I think different people had different views about filming and me, um, but um, in general, you know, I, well, I found, I mean, there were some cases where like the great sequence of the swirling water in Silko Weidenfurtner's laboratory in, in Nottingham, where I, I worked with a, an astonishing cinematographer. Um, and there are other scenes where, so there I had a crew, I mean, he had, camera assistant, a sound person. There were other times where there was no, there simply wasn't, it was too intimate, too small a circumstance to do that. Uh, an example was that scene where Shep Doleman, you know, it's two or three in the morning and there are only a couple of people left in the sort of command post in this seminar room. It's, it's also 
an office that I shared with Shep, and there, there was no film crew. I, I just filmed that. And so I think that the circumstances of filming, I mean, one advantage of having, you know, the disadvantage of having me film is that I'm not one of the great cinematographers of our era, as was the as is the cinematographer who did the, that scene and who also filmed some of the Fukushima sequences in um, in my last film. But the advantage of some of the times when I could film by myself was with no sound person, just clip-on mics and auxiliary microphones placed in various places, and 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 uh, was that it it was much less disruptive, and people, you know, over. Over five years, people got pretty used to the idea that sometimes I, you know, put down one hat and take on another. And so I tried to to to, to follow some representative moments in the film. And um, I mean, there's probably twenty or thirty times as much footage as appears in this film. The film is about ninety ninety five minutes long, um, but I mean many, many times that in scenes that I thought might work. Uh, one of the reasons I like to edit along the way is I hate that feeling you think, oh, I really got that. And you don't, it's not good. It's not interesting or the sound's bad or you know, it's irrecoverable in some way. Um, or somebody that seemed to you very sincere at the moment comes across as withholding or in an, and not in an interesting way. So there's a lot of decisions that have to be made after the fact, but I try to make them close after the fact so I can really then see what I need next. Peter, thank you very much for sharing your movie with us and for joining us to talk about it. It's a pleasure. Thank you all for coming and thank you, Babak, for organizing. If you haven't seen the movie yet, please follow the links at the consortium website or in the description below this video on YouTube to find out how you can see it. You've been watching the 2021 Albert M. Greenfield Forum at the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. Additional support for this event has been generously provided by the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation. Please check our website, join the mailing list, or follow us on your favorite social media for other activities and resources for research, teaching, and learning about the history of science, technology, and medicine. Thank you for joining us. Goodbye till next time. Thank you all.